before I uh, get started, I, you know, I, I've been meaning to say this for eons, and um, uh, I am thankful for your prayers for me. Um, even if you just only prayed once for me in your whole life. Um, <laughs> I am increasingly convinced that someday in just a few years for me, and for all the rest of you, some of you will, will get there before me, um, that so much of our life has been under the shower of God's blessing because other people have been praying for us. In fact, I, I think if suddenly people had stopped, it scares me to think what, what would happen. So uh, I just am grateful for that. I, I have, in a sense, I want to say I have no idea how grateful I'm going to be for that. So, uh, so thank you. So we'll shift from that to a word called catfishing. So I'll never forget the first time I heard this term, and, and I realized they weren't talking about catfishing. Uh, I mean, that's the kind of fish you catch, you know, that you think, oh, man, that's not quite what I wanted. I mean, what a, is it really even a fish? What is this thing? Uh, this slimy creature that supposedly tastes good that has whiskers on it. And then it kind of made sense why what I'm about to describe is called catfishing. Uh, so catfishing in a real simple a sentence, if you've heard the term uh, about uh, an online catfishing, that is, it's when someone creates a fake online persona in order to lure someone into uh, a relationship. So this can happen in, in kind of mild forms, uh, you know, a lot of online dating, you know, where you, you finally find out the person you've been in a relationship with isn't anything like what they look like or say they are. But it can also be a full-blown, life-destroying scam. Uh, in one case, uh, of, of there's thousands and thousands of these. Uh, a woman's cousin connects with this woman online through a rather vaguely known relative in her family tree, and over months begins to establish this caring relationship with this, with this woman. Uh, eventually, it turns into an online uh, romantic relationship. Uh, this cousin eventually is hospitalized uh, and then begins to communicate to this woman through his medical consultant, his ex-wife, through several other friends, all fake, by the way, and just confirming that he's been hospitalized, which then, of course, allows this person to send money. Uh, but even more than that, uh, becomes entrapped in this very intense emotional relationship to the point to where he's threatening to kill himself unless she does certain things for him. Uh, eventually becomes so uh, occupying of her life every single hour when she's off work, she's communicating with him. Eventually she quits her job because the demands go up uh, and one thing continues to lead to another. She starts to become suicidal. Eventually, a few friends begin to aggressively intervene. And uh, sh thankfully, she's redeemed from this relationship, but is in years of healing and repair from that. Uh, these kinds of scams uh, affect 23% of all 
women who are online. Uh, all right, guys, if you think women are bad, 38% of men. Since 2019, catfishing scams have gone up by 174%. Now, scams have been around long before there was an online world. There's nothing new about this. In fact, um, before we dismiss those people who fall for scams, which, by the way, I almost fell for one for the first time in my life. I'm, uh, I'm arrogantly proud to say. Uh, through Best Buy, which turned out not to be Best Buy, but I was certain it was Best Buy. But, um, but before you dismiss people who fall for these scams as gullible, consider this. The greatest scam ever pulled off was pulled off on our first parents. All of us have fallen for it. And all of us continue to fall for the same scam over and over again, as we're going to see today. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, because we are returning to this book we've been in for a while. I know some of you began to give up on me because you thought I gave up on Philippians. <laughs> not so, not so. Philippians chapter 3. which starts off with this sentence. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord, which is a perfect sentence for me to review what Philippians is all about. Uh, Philippians is a book of joy. Uh, that's been told, told by many people, but more specifically, it's a book of persevering joy. The one who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, Apostle just means official representative of Jesus Christ, uh, the apostle who's writing to this church, he himself is in prison. He's writing to a church that is being persecuted. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's, it's starting to cost them something to be a believer. Uh, they're being marginalized by their community because their community is accusing them of being unpatriotic to Caesar. Uh, on top of that, they are very, very poor. They're not only very poor in terms of the whole Roman Empire, they're very poor in terms of even their own city because it often was the case that new churches were started with people that tended to be uh, materially poor. And so Paul says to them, find your joy in the Lord. It's the only thing that's nailed down in this world. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about joy is joy increases our capacity to suffer for Christ. That's the other beautiful thing about this book. Uh, I love the, the term. I haven't been able to find a better one yet. A definition for joy is contented anticipation. Contented anticipation. It's You're so confident of what's coming in the future, you can find contentment in the present. So... Uh, that's what joy is. But there's other words in the book of Philippians. Uh, joy doesn't just show up many times. So does the word knowledge and gospel. But the word that shows up the most is in Christ. And we're going to see that, the importance of that uh, today in Philippians chapter 3. And I mentioned that you can put all these sort of words together in one nice little metaphor. Uh, if you think of the sun, S-U-N, 
And the heart of Philippians, the very center of the book, the very the central theme of the message is found in Philippians 2, where it speaks about Jesus humbling himself and becoming humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's this picture, if you can think of it this way, uh, of humility. The humility of Christ is kind of like hydrogen and helium in the sun. It creates such a gravitational pull, it pulls all these other planets in our solar system around it. And so humility is like this gravitational effect. It, it unites believers around the gospel, around the cause of Christ. And as, as this humility of Christ unites us around the gospel, it explodes, just like the sun is a constant nuclear reaction, it explodes in radiating joy out to a dark world. That's Philippians, this beautiful metaphor here. And so when we come to Philippians chapter 3, we've already seen the issue of how a, a, a community, when they're under the heat, when, when it starts to cost you in becoming a Christian, a community can start to fall apart by either disunity or in some cases isolation, every man for himself. So that's somewhat been addressed in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But there's another thing that can disrupt a community when it's under the heat, and that is when it falls for the counterfeit, the counterfeit scam that's always been there since our first parents and is still there. And so when we get to chapter three, he talks about the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Don't fall for the counterfeit. In fact, I'd almost put it this way. If you keep your eyes on the prize, you will never fall. Well, not never. You'll hardly ever fall for the counterfeit, or at least it won't get much traction in your life. And so we can divide up chapter 3 between the sort of pressing toward part and the prize part that we're going to look at today. So, back to chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And now look at chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and in case you haven't heard me say it twice, let me say it again, rejoice. Some people have said that uh, chapter 3 isn't from the Apostle Paul at all. Someone else put it in, because if you take it out, if you, if you, if you take 3-1 all the way through 4-4 four, four out, it'll, it flows perfectly. It's like all of a sudden this little piece gets stuck in between the two rejoices. And that's, of course, the way people who don't really understand uh, the Holy Spirit being involved in writing the Bible, uh, they're inclined to think that way. But in fact, I, it makes perfect sense what's happened here. Paul is writing his letter. He's dictating it to someone who writes it down for him. And it's as though he's about to close his letter off, chapter 4, and the Holy Spirit says, don't forget to tell him. And he stops and he interrupts and he says, I need to talk to you about the dogs. You're thinking, dogs? Where did you get that from? Well, let's look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And he goes on to describe this. We'll come back to this in a minute. But I want you to see the heart of these first 11 verses. It's found in, in verses 8 through 11. Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
I'm going to read the rest of this, but I want you to pause here for just a minute as I do and think about this question. What's Paul talking about in 8 through 11? What's he talking about? Is he, is he talking about doctrine, the, the sort of tested teachings of the church through time? Is, is he talking about doctrine in 8 through 11? Is he talking about his intense desires in 8 through 11? Or is he talking about Christ in 8 through 11? So let me start again. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Some of you know me by now when I set you up for a question like that. Which of the three is it? And the answer, of course, is yes. <clears throat> but let's look at the context a little bit more here in order to understand this. The first seven verses. Who are these dogs he's talking about in verse two? Well, he does describe them a little bit more in verse three by sort of saying the opposite. We are the circumcision as opposed to them. Um, but in short, he's actually using a little bit of a pun here. Uh, it was typical for Jews to describe non-Jews, which are called Gentiles, it was typical to describe them as dogs because they were ritually unclean. Uh, even when they came and wanted to worship at the Jewish temple, because they were not circumcised, because they weren't full Jews, they couldn't go into the inner part of the temple and had to remain on the outside of the temple because they weren't ritually clean. And so interestingly, there is a group of Jewish Christians, don't get confused here, these are people who believe, Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah, but these Jewish Christians, Paul is now calling them the dogs. He's using the term right back against them because these Jewish Christians, which were known as Judaizers, they were uh, basically telling these new Gentile Christians that they could not be Christians unless they submitted to the law of Moses, all the regulations in the Old Testament, particularly circumcision. To which Paul says, there's a problem with that. And you can almost see it in the words here, can't you? And let me just read it with emphasis. Verse 3, we are the circumcision... Not those Jewish Christians. We are. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. You're getting the emphasis, aren't you? I have more, he says. And then he goes on to describe himself, circumcised the eighth day, a people of, the, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, not just a normal Jew like a, Pal uh, you know, a, a Roman Jew, but a Jew who knew Hebrew and used Hebrew, and to the law of Pharisee, to the zeal of persecutor of the church, to righteousness under the law, blameless. Here's all of his fleshly credentials. And Paul reminds me in this passage here that 
Satan has no original material. He just keeps using the same scam over and over again. It's not that he lacks cleverness. We know he's a very clever individual. It's just that he doesn't need to be clever. Humanity is stunningly forgetful and easily deceived. Stunningly forgetful and easily deceived. Think about it. The whole world is religious. Oh yeah, there's an incredibly small percentage that isn't. But virtually the whole world are part of some kind of organized religion. And all of them are the same. When you blow all the dust away, all the different terminologies, they're all essentially the same thing. They are a twist on the original idea. Instead of being a creature or a creator-centered world, they are a creature-centered world. Instead of focusing on the creator's performance, they focus in on the creature's performance. And that's the scam that keeps being resold over and over again. Look at verse 6. It's actually possible to check all the boxes in a religion. That's what Paul did. Under the law of God, under the law of Moses, I am blameless. It's possible to check all the boxes in religious requirements in all these religions. We, de we deceive ourselves because we look better than we are. It's like the first time I remember, this was several years back, I, we were at a, a hotel somewhere, and I went into the bathroom, and I could not believe how old I was. It's not that they didn't have any lights in my bathroom at home, <laughs> but the light in my bathroom at home was substantially less, apparently. Um, but that's what happens when you, when you don't have the right light or the full light. You know, you can look at a law of God, and if you're just looking at sins of commission, you can actually be blameless. But if you consider sins of omission, none of us are. The real answer is verse 3. Circumcision of the heart, worshiping by the Spirit of God. And the counterfeit to that, verses 4 through 6, is when you do not worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, who is Paul glorying in in 4 through 6? Himself. There's either spirit worship that's centered on Christ or there's self-worship that is centered on me. Uh, Paul says it another way in uh, Romans chapter 2 when he speaks about uh, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, and nor is circumcision outward and physical, to, which to the Jewish ear would have said, what? Uh, but all the symbols God gave in the Old Testament, all the symbols like baptism God gives in the New Testament, they are nothing more than, than outward signs of an inward reality. So like I tell people when they get baptized, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, all that's going to happen is you're just going to get wet today. The symbol means absolutely nothing if it's not reflecting an inward reality. And a Jew is one who is inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, you can't command people to convert. It's not by the letter. And ultimately, this last line is so telling it's the praise of God and not the praise of man that matters. And if you want to get the praise of man, being really good at religion is a great way to do it. Uh, but this is something entirely different here. 
And this is one of the reasons why we need to, as, as it were, keep our eye on the prize, which is stated for us in verse 8. It's all about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Master, which is why doctrine matters. Doctrine is simply a fancy way of saying the time-tested teachings of the church. It's why the Church of Christ has always been a teaching institution. It's why virtually all the Ivy League schools of this country were started by the church so that people would be able to know how to read, so people would be able to see that theology was the queen of all the sciences on the university campus. But it's also why, interestingly, uh, all of those institutions failed because doctrine became an end in itself, not a means to an end. Knowledge became used for self-trust instead of Christ's trust. And as a result, those institutions uh, failed in their original design. And that's why everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in this world, everything is aimed at this one thing, for humanity to know God. To know what God is up to. To know the story of how Jesus is making all things new. The most mundane detail in your life to the most tragic detail in your life. Behind all of these details and these few seconds of your existence. is all about getting to know Christ. It's all about getting to know God. It's all about getting to know what he's up to. The vast majority of noise in our world. And attention in, in our world is on counterfeit stories, however. These are the ones that uh, get all the Oscars. All those counterfeit stories, all those different versions of the same counterfeit uh, started with our first parents. Those are the ones that get all the attention. They win all of the Oscars. I'm not talking about actual Oscars here. But they're the stories that are so satisfying and so believable and so fake but we fall for him again and again. Matthew 13, the verse that uh, uh, Deb read for us, um, speaks about the same idea. Paul says, I'm willing to give up everything to know Christ. And here, I don't know if you saw this parallel at all between these two passages, but it doesn't say that, the, that Jesus is like a treasure hid in the field. It doesn't say Jesus is the f great pearl that's discovered. It uses another phrase, the kingdom of heaven. It's almost like the kingdom of heaven and Jesus are both this, these amazing things that are worth giving up everything to find. Well, that's because uh, it's not just about Jesus. It's about what Jesus is up to. He's making all things new. Jesus is not a personal teddy bear that we give people who are really hurting in this world. He's not just a big old spiritual comforter for the people who need healing. He's so much more than that. He's not just a ticket to Disneyland. He is a treasure. He is the Savior King who's remaking this world right now into his kingdom. And before believers, and, and amazingly, in this kingdom, believers are at the center of his attention. We are part of this grand redo of all of creation. We are the treasure and the pearl. The treasure that, uh, in the first parable, 
the, the person looking for the treasure sort of stumbles upon it. It's like they weren't even looking for it. None of us, by the way, none of us were looking for Jesus. We didn't find him. He found us. It just looks like we found him. Uh, we stumbled upon this treasure. Are the, guy, are the merchant who's searching for a great pearl and actually finds a pearl beyond his wildest imagination. That's what Jesus is like, and that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that's what we found. If I can put it this way without sounding too cheap, it's a madness that lasts beyond March. <laughs> and this is why doctrine is this time-tested teaching of the church that keeps telling us over and over again the true story. This doctrine, what it does more than anything else, is it anchors us in what's really real. Let me, can I just show you one example from Psalm 73? You don't have to turn there. So let me just, let me just read to you. I, was, I bumped into this psalm uh, this week. Psalm 73 describes a situation that's probably familiar to many of you. The writer of the psalm says, I was envious of the proud. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any pains in their death. Their bodies are fat, and by fat they meant healthy. Uh, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, they scoff and speak with malice, and they don't get punished at all. They say God doesn't even know. Finally, down in verse 13, it's all in vain, my keeping my heart clean. These are honest statements by people who struggle with where is God and what is he up to, and etc. The psalm just goes on like this. But I didn't start at verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You know, there are, there are times, if you haven't experienced them, I'm bewildered. But there are times when you probably feel like, I am just going through the motions. I'm singing these songs on Sunday morning, but I'm just not into it. I don't even believe half of them. There are times when you're just going through the motion from, from week to week. And this is the beauty of doctrine. To tell yourself what's really true, not what you're feeling so strongly. To tell yourself what's really true and not what you're feeling so strongly. Come on, you're smart enough to know this. Your feelings are not the greatest barometer of what's really real in this world. And here we have this beautiful pattern. It's over and over in the Psalms. It's many times in the Bible where we're just constantly telling ourselves what's true over and over again. <coughs> Philip Doddridge said this, when the darkness continues, go in your way of duty. Continue the use of means and ordinances. So read and meditate even if you don't feel like it. Pray, yes, and even sing praises. Though, though your heart may be heavy. Now, let me just tell you something about Philip Doddridge, which, by the way, on this day in 1730, he became ordained as a pastor. Um, Philip Doddridge wrote a book called The Rise and Progress of the Religion of the Soul. It wasn't very popular, but a handful of people read it, and one man in particular was wildly changed as a result of reading that book. His name was William Wilberforce. 
probably the sole man responsible in some ways for convincing the British government over a long period of time to overturn slavery and stop it. But Philip Dodgeridge doesn't, doesn't write this as some kind of theological thing. Hey, look, the, you know, though your heart may be heavy, keep doing what you're doing. Here was a guy who lost his five-year-old daughter. Here was a guy who had nine children and lost five of them in infancy. Tell yourself what's true. Tell yourself the real story over and over again. This is what knowing Jesus is all about. This is what it is for Paul. Doctrine is like the focus knob on a camera lens that takes a blurry Jesus that looks like every other religious figure and helps you see him as a stunning savior king before whom you gladly bow and give yourself in passionate service. And if doctrine doesn't do that to you, then you don't really know it yet. And so what happens here in verses 9 through 11 is that Paul takes theological teachings to describe the experience of knowing Jesus. And the more you know Jesus, the less you fall for the counterfeit, or in the words of C.S. Lewis, the less you think the shadows are the real thing. This is just the shadow lands we're in right now. And so here's a simple outline, and we'll just cruise over these quickly, verses 9, 10, and 11. He doesn't just tell us about justification, sanctification, and glorification as sort of plastic doctrines. By the way, those are just three fancy terms to describe what happens to every single person who gives their life to Jesus. He, he, he justifies them, he declares them right, he sanctifies them, he makes them beautiful, he glorifies them, he takes them to a home where their beauty can never go away. Sanctification, or justification, sanctification, glorification. But first he says, we need to learn to bask in our justification. Verse 9, after he says this strange phrase in verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. Am I the only one who stops and says, I thought you already had Christ. And be, be found in him, he goes on to describe what he means, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that's from God, not me, that depends on faith. Paul is saying when he says to gain Christ, he says, I am looking forward to the full glory of justification. I am looking forward to when I will be found in him with a righteousness that is, is all from him. No longer my own sort of self-righteousness. I can't wait to be found in Christ when all the righteousness in me comes from Christ and nowhere else. And the easiest way that I make sense of this is, do you ever feel pressure to control your world around you at all? Probably not, right? I mean, am I kind of alone in that? Do you ever want to look good in your own eyes are in the eyes of others. I'm not even talking about, you know, uh, I'm just talking about people you respect, you want to look good in their eyes as well. Or do you ever feel addicted to being so focused on yourself, you just wish you could get your mind off of yourself? Okay, should we close the prayer right there? <laughs> Justification 
is relief from all of that. Justification, if you really begin to sink your teeth into it and bask in it, it is relief from this oppressive self-trust into Christ's trust. It does more than anything, it seems to me, to switch your focus from you and your performance, what you're doing, to what Christ has done on your behalf. After all, what you are doing is you are basking in the confidence of a received righteousness, not in the uncertainty of, a, of an achieved righteousness. You're always feeling like you can't achieve righteousness, which is right. You have to have a received righteousness from, from before God. So that's the beauty of basking in justification. But then when it comes to sanctification, Paul really talks about this idea of embracing sanctification in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And there is just this little phrase here that's not even, uh, uh, at least in the English Standard Version, it's not even there, uh, and that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. In other words, I think this is what Paul is saying grammatically here. To know Jesus is to experience his resurrection power and to share his sufferings. That's what it means to know Jesus. Think about it this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of what God is doing. Remember what God's up to? He's remaking the world, making it better than the original paradise. As soon as Jesus came, he began the process of remaking the world. Jesus, when he resurrected, was the first harvest of the first movement in remaking the new world. He's the first fruits. So resurrection is all about reversing the effects of the fall. It's about pushing death back permanently so that life can flourish forever. It's about killing off your old self so that the new self is all that's left of yourself. And such a reversal like this can only happen through pain. There's just no other way around it. This kind of radical reversal involves pain. And perhaps the hardest pain of all, Philippians chapter 2, dying to yourself. I think that's a harder pain than even physical pain. Dying to yourself over and over again, emptying yourself to enter into costly obedience. Proverbs 17 is just the, verse 3 is this small little phrase that says this, the crucible is for silver, and furnace is for gold. Now, you guys know that crucibles, right, and furnaces are not pleasant places to live. You're smashed, you're heated up. Why is all that happening? To do what? To get the impurities out of you so that the original beauty is all there is. So Proverbs 17 says this, the crucible is for silver, furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. He tests hearts. This week, a uh, couple people, uh, I was praying for them because they were in crisis mode. They, they were in a situation where something had to happen or the consequences weren't going to be great. And I prayed for them. I prayed that the Lord would grant their wish 
But I also prayed something else that I've been praying for myself for a long time and for a lot of you without you even knowing it. Sorry about that. Uh, I prayed that the Lord would grant their wish, but he would also ready their heart for something better if their wish didn't come true. He would ready their heart for something better if their wish didn't come true. Because one of the versions of this counterfeit story that we fall for is real easy to begin to worship the gifts rather than the gift giver. It's real easy to do that. It's real easy to, without even noticing it, for the creature, in this case the gift, what you want, to become the center of your universe rather than the creator. It's the same counterfeit story over and over again. God knows what we need. I only know what I want. God's much more interested in changing me than he is in changing my life. And I'm so grateful for that. And this suffering that we experience today is worth it because of what it means for tomorrow. That's what the last verse is all about there. Anticipation of glorification. Uh, notice what he says at the beginning of verse 11. Whatever it takes, Lord, by any means possible, Lord, whatever it takes, make me walk barefoot over broken glass, whatever it takes, Lord, to get at what I'm, what I'm looking at, more of Christ. More of Christ, more of the whole experience of knowing Jesus. I don't think Paul is doubting here, by the way, in verse 11. It seems like that on the surface, that I may possibly attain the resurrection from the dead. He's the same one who said, the God who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is whatever it takes, Lord, to be in that place where perfection is complete. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 12, I'm not there yet, but I can't wait to be there. I can't wait to be in that place when I'm completed, when I'm, uh, when I'm perfect. I want to, uh, before we go to bread and cup here and take of the Lord's table. I just, I so appreciated this one line from a commentary this week that said so much in summarizing this whole message. Stephen Fowle says this, that if you notice what happens in this passage from verse 1 to verse uh, 11, Paul subtly shifts from being the subject of his own story to being a part of the story where Christ is now the subject. That's what it's all about. A creator-centered world, not a creature-centered world. It's great to get out of the spotlight and just let it shine completely on Christ and to just enjoy basking in and knowing him. I want to invite the guys forward uh, serving communion of the worship team. In just a second, I want to talk about how we can come to the Lord's table today. If you're visiting with us, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I, I welcome you to this table. We'll come down the center aisle and I'll lead us all in a few moments after everyone has bread and cup together. The counterfeit is simply being preoccupied with yourself rather than the creator. 
The counterfeit is when we, the creatures, try to play the role of creator. And interestingly, in this counterfeit story, God winds up owing us, which is why we so easily get upset with him, rather than recognizing that if it wasn't for God, we would be nothing. And the most outrageous part of this scam that our first parents fell for is that if you think about it for just a moment, it makes this event unnecessary. Because it makes the cross unnecessary. That's the thing about the scam. The greatest proof of God's love in a world that doesn't know how to love and the greatest proof of God's justice in a world that doesn't know justice is the cross of Jesus Christ. And essentially, the counterfeit scam says, we got this. We don't need the cross. And what should undo us, the cross, does nothing for us. That is the most outrageous part of the scam. So today I would say this. If you're here and you're not even sure where you stand with Jesus Christ, you could come and take a bread and cup and this can be your moment to receive Christ. This can be your moment to say, Christ is my only hope. I've been living a creature-centered world and I want to put the creator back on his throne. I want to bow to Jesus as the only king that reigns over my life. And take bread and cup. For those of you who already know Christ, I would say look at verses 8 through 11 and let them be like wedding vows that you are renewing as you come up here and say, I want to know Christ more than anything else. Nothing in life compares to that of knowing Christ even more. And so ask the Lord for ask to encounter him this very week and anticipate that you will. Let me pray for us. I thank you, Lord, for being the shepherd whose voice we can hear because of you. To be a sheep with you, the shepherd, means to be known by you, to be seen by you, to be deeply loved by you, to be held by you, to be chased with you, chased from you, chasing after us without any conditions because your forgiveness is unlimited, because you have determined to make us sinlessly beautiful and you have prepared a place for us where we no longer have to imagine all the world living as one, because they will be. And for that we say thank you. Oh Lord, you are our shepherd, we shall not want.